Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Wise Athletes Podcast, where we invite you to join our journey to understand how older athletes can achieve high performance and longevity in athletics. I am Joe Lavelle with Dr. Glenn Winkle, and this is episode 14 of our podcast. Today, Glenn and I are joined by Charlie Merrill in Boulder, Colorado. Charlie is a physical therapist who has been serving the Boulder community and athletes for over 20 years. In recent years, Charlie has added pain science and more psychologically informed modalities to his manual therapy and biomechanical toolkits. He emphasizes the body and mind in identifying physical and psychological social factors that result in physical symptoms like pain. Charlie says the source of most athletes' pain is not often what you'd expect. Listen in as Charlie explains the science and practice of solving pain issues for athletes. As always, Glenn and I hope you find this information helpful in your quest to become a wise athlete. Hello, everybody. I'm here with Glenn Winkle again, and today we're joined by Charlie Merrill, who is a physiotherapist in Boulder, Colorado. Charlie, your company's name is Merrill Performance. Is that right? That's correct. Thanks for having me, Joe and Glenn. Nice to be with you both. Welcome, Charlie. Nice to have you on board. So you've been working in your business with athletes for in the Boulder area for over 20 years. Is that right? Over 20 years. Yes. Yes. Uh, doing mostly sort of a, what I would describe as like what people are familiar with an outpatient manual therapy practice for, a, for a lot of those years, more traditional manipulation, needling, corrective exercise, you know, biomechanical type stuff. Excellent. Well, I have not personally worked with you, but I know people who have, and they rave about their results in working with you. What do you think is the reason for your success in helping people? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I've, been, I've been thinking about that more and more as I've made this shift from sort of traditional biomechanics to more looking at pain science and looking at the role of the, the brain and the mind. And for a long time, you know, I, I feel really fortunate to have had such a long running, successful, independent practice in such a competitive town where there are a lot of really talented clinicians. And I always wondered, like, you know, I, I love, I love continually learning and training and learning new skills, but I, I never was under the impression that I was like the best at anything. So I always wondered, like, you know, why am I successful? What, what is the secret formula? And for so many years, I really had a hard time figuring that out. And while I think I'm good at those other pieces, I think what I've learned is at the end of the day, um, the term therapeutic alliance you might be familiar with or your relationship with the person you're working with turns out as sort of the foundation for everything else. And so I think my ability to be effective really comes down to my ability to relate to people, really listen to and hear them and connect with them in a way where I can you know, share hope and optimism about, about what we're doing. You know, the manual therapy skills and the technical tools um, are an adjunct to that, I guess is how I think about it. Well, and I know that you're an athlete as well. Do you think that being an athlete helps you to empathize with your athletic patients? I think so. I think being able to relate to them, uh, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk gets you some respect. You know, if I'm working with someone that's racing cyclocross and they know that I understand the world they're living in and the suffering that they're going through, that helps to continue to build that therapeutic alliance, right? And I can also talk, talk in the context of their sport. So I've always enjoyed playing lots of sports. And so I can relate to almost anything. You know, I've played hockey, I've played golf, I've played tennis, I've, I've downhill ski raced, I've raced bikes, I've run. And so I'm not really great at any of those things, but I understand all of them enough to be able to have a conversation with someone about the details of their sport. And I do think that goes a long way. I think, it, I think it's an important factor in building trust. Well, and one of the things that you must benefit from is understanding how important it is to the athlete to feel strong and healthy. And when they start to lose that, or they think they're losing that, how damaging that can be to their, the quality of their life. Yeah, it really, it really does. Pain or other symptoms really do tend to make people feel vulnerable and human and, and fragile in a way, in a way that they maybe haven't felt in a long time. And um, especially when someone hasn't had a lot of experience with pain or injury. Yeah, it can be really scary. And so to have someone they can come to to connect with that, that um, really understands what they're dealing with, has gone through it before and can sort of calm, calm them around what's going on. Because it does, uh, you and I talked, Joe, about how this, this really threatens, threatens our identity 
in, at some level as athletes when we're not able to do the things we want to do. And, um, and that's a really important part of the process is to recognize that. Yeah. Well, great. I have a list of some things that I, based on some material you sent to me and, and what I was hoping we, we could get a chance to talk about, I've got a little list of some things that I want to touch on and then we can add to it here before we jump into it. The first thing that I thought we should touch on would be like, what is pain and where does whatever that is, whatever, where does pain come from? Another thing would be chronic pain. What is that chronic pain? And the next thing on my list was overuse injuries, which I think is very closely related to this chronic pain idea. And then uh, with a little bit of a foreshadowing of what we're going to be talking about today, how to tell and how to deal with pain that is not related to damage in the body. And then because of our audience for wise athletes, advice you would have for the older athlete who wants to remain strong and active for a long time. And one of the things that I had mentioned to you, I, I think the first time we chatted was, I want to be strong and active and mobile late into life. What that doesn't mean is able to go on a bus tour of Italy. I want to go on a bike tour of Italy when I'm yeah. 80 years old. Love so that. I'm not trying to preserve my ability to hobble around. I want to be a strong, healthy person for a long time. And that is what I'm, that's the kind of information I'm looking to gather for myself and then for my audience here. I love that. that that's great. It's a great summary. Okay. And if there's anything else that occurs to you, we can just, you know, just throw it all in there. Sounds good. As I jump in here, I want to try to just summarize. You sent me a bunch of videos. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very enlightening. So it seems like, uh, based on this information, it seems like there's this weird disconnect between pain and structural damage in the body, which a normal person like me would think, well, wait a minute, what do you mean disconnect? Aren't they like the same thing? Well, no, it turns out they aren't the same thing. I would have thought that pain is a signal to slow down and be careful and let damage heal. And this information that you shared with me is that that might be true, but it's not always true. Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's a great way to summarize it. I think to step back, you know, we've learned more about pain in the last 10 years probably than we've learned in the last thousand years. And there have been a lot of theories about uh, what causes pain, you know, going, going thousands of years back what causes pain and suffering in human beings. In the face of that, in the last 10 years, the second half of my practice, I've been, I've been shifting from more of a body primary focus to one that really is more of a body and mind balance. So we hold both of those things with equal regard. You know, the idea that structural damage and pain don't correlate very often is very hard to get your head around because we were all taught and raised to believe that if we have pain, that's definitely a sig signal that there's something wrong with our body. And we're learning now, and I, I throw this stat out, often in my practice in one of the most active towns in the country, I would estimate that eight or nine out of 10 clients that I see do not have a primary body problem, even though they're dealing with pain or other symptom. And that's an audit I did in 2018 of my new clients that came through my practice. And I'm going to do another one this year um, to sort of update that, that data. But it's really interesting to think that we have all these athletes that are dealing with pain and very few of them really have anything significant wrong with their body. It's really hard to get your head around, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's like good news, bad news. The good news is there's nothing wrong with you. <laughs> the bad news is you are in pain. Yes. And it's all very real. And that's a good point. All pain is real. All pain. Similarly, what you learn from the resources I shared is that hundred percent of the time pain is controlled by our brain. Whether you broke your arm and you have an actual fracture or whether you've had pain for 10 years, all that pain is being decided by your brain. Right. And it all makes sense. Uh, you know, in my own life, I've had plenty of pain, some from broken bones and torn ligaments that was bad pain. Crashing on your bike, presumably. Uh, and other forms of self-destruction. <laughs> and it heals eventually. And sometimes it takes a long time to fully heal. But it was obviously related to some damage to my body. You know, and in that situation, your instinct is to, well, let it heal. 
let's let it rest and then it'll heal. And then I can go back to doing what I was doing. But more and more, as I got older, I found that resting did not help, that not using it, the pain never went away. And it didn't go away until I went back to using it. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's something that that people make the mistake of stopping their sport way too often. And we see that over and over again, that actually um, stopping movement, almost without exception, doesn't help at all. And so staying active in some way, shape, or form is a really important part of the process. I also talk in the clinic a lot about healing time, because while sometimes it seems like things are taking a really long time to heal, what's actually happening, happening is the healing process can be pretty linear. And we have ranges of healing times for muscle or bone or tendon or ligament, but the pain can continue long after that healing is done. And it's not because the body hasn't healed, it's because the brain is still continuing to produce pain. The brain actually gets into a habit of producing symptoms because it can learn pain just like it can learn anything, riding a bike or any skill. The brain gets very good at learning these things. And once it lays down a neural pathway for that symptom, it can keep it going for months or years or decades sometimes, long after the eight-week fracture healing time is done. Right. Well, maybe we ought to go back and go back to the top here and talk about what is pain and where does it come from? Yeah. So the old model was that pain was a body problem and the body would receive something, some input, and then that pain would be communicated up to the brain, right? And then the brain would register it. And that thinking is now sort of backwards. What we know is that there's information coming in from the body all the time. It could be touch. It could be something sharp. It could be something hot. All that is just information. We could call it nociception, and this gets kind of nerdy, but until that stuff makes it up to the brain, it's not pain yet. The brain actually has to interpret it as danger. It actually has to have a high enough threshold, by the way, to even make it to our brain. At the spinal level, spine can actually stop that information from even getting to the brain because it has more important things to do. And if it hits that critical threshold, that information makes it, then the brain has to say, well, okay, I'm getting this information. What do I do about it? Right. And Lorimer Mosley talks about this in his, in his um, TED talk that I shared with you guys, uh, which is a fantastic story about his pain experience with the snake bite. Oh, that was funny. And we'll put that link in the show notes. Oh, it's so great. And he's, he's so funny the way he talks about this stuff. But, you know, the brain's job is to keep us safe, right? So the brain is always trying to make predictions about what's happening around us. It's, I always think of it, it's like in this dark vault. It's like almost blind in there in some way getting all this information saying, well, what do I do with all this information? If the, if the, the input is high enough from having your hand on a hot stove, you know, it's going to tell you to take your hand off the stove really fast. And that's an accurate interpretation by the brain. Um, the brain is also weighing lots of other information coming in through our eyes, through our ears, stuff that's stored, memories, beliefs. You know, there's emotion going on in there. And all of that stuff is being weighed so that the brain can make a decision about what to do about it. And interestingly, for athletes, pain is a really great way to get our attention, right? If you want to get an athlete's attention and have them sit up and make some change, then give them pain. The challenge is the message isn't always that you have your hand on a hot stove. So interpreting that message is a really important part of the process. But knowing that um, not only is the brain processing information coming in from the body, but also from our life stresses, you know, our financial stresses and our family stresses and the news and politics and the coronavirus, it, it's, it's very easy to see how the brain would react to try to protect us. And pain is just one of the choices it has. The other one is our immune system, right? And we'll get sick. One is our digestive system, and we'll start to have diarrhea or constipation or irritable, irritable bowel or something like that. We could have a nervous breakdown, right, if things get too overwhelming. So there are lots of decisions, lots of pathways the brain can use to get our attention, and pain is just a really effective one in athletes. Does that make sense? So let, let me try to summarize, even though you explained it very well, I think that this just bears repeating for the listener. So what is true is that the pain comes from the brain. And through pain, the brain may be telling you something about structural damage you have. But your brain may also not decide to tell you about structural damage you have, right? There was that, it was in one of the things you sent me, there was a study of people who had no pain 
where they did MRIs of their spine and probably other joints. And they found that even 20-year-olds, a significant percentage of them had disc degeneration in their spine and they had no pain. And so the point is that damage in the body does not necessarily mean pain. Right. So your brain can use pain to tell you about damage that you have. You may have damage and your body doesn't tell you about it with pain. And sometimes your brain, your brain doesn't tell you about it. Your brain right. doesn't register that it's a problem or that it's dangerous. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, for, for whatever reason, anyway, I, I don't know why it doesn't, but sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, somebody shows you an MRI and they say, oh, you've got this problem in your back and that's why you have pain in your back. That's not necessarily true. That's you, correct. Cause some nine out of 10 people with that problem you know, maybe one other one has the pain and the other seven don't have any pain. That's right. Yeah, we, we, see, we, we see this play out both ways. We see um, there's a story about a construction worker that's really commonly used when we talk about pain that jumped off a scaffolding and a nail went up through his boot and out the top. And he immediately collapsed to the ground, massive pain, was taken to the hospital in an ambulance. They sedated him. And when they cut off his boot, the nail had gone right between his toes and it didn't even <laughs> hurt his foot. But his brain saw that nail and thought there must be you know, some damage, right? So he had no injury, but his brain uh, reacted to that to keep him safe by producing pain. We have many other stories where there's actually tissue damage. Um, another one involving a nail, I'll just stay with the nail theme here, where a guy shot a nail through his finger, didn't have any pain at all, and he happened to be on the job site by himself. So he had to drive himself to the hospital. And his brain knew that if he freaked out like the other guy, he was alone. He wasn't going anywhere. So I better keep that pain knob turned down until I get to safety, right? And we see this with, with soldiers in combat sometimes too. So I think it's, it's helpful to know that the, the brain can, can get it wrong. Um, more often than not, the brain will produce pain in the absence of tissue damage rather than the other way around. I just like to, I just like to say that because otherwise people might get hung up on this idea that, well, I now I have tissue damage, but my brain doesn't even know it. I have no pain at all. And I have all this tissue damage. I like to really spend a lot of time normalizing tissue changes and not really call them damage. Because as you said, we see in 20 year olds, they have arthritic change already in their back and that's normal. And that just progresses in all of us as we get older. And we see the same thing in the hip and we see the same thing in the knee. So these normal tissue changes are not pathological and they correlate very poorly with pain. That's an important point. And I'm glad you, just for my own benefit, I'm glad you said that. Otherwise, I would start. You were getting scared. Weren't you? I would, I, I'm going to need to run to the hospital and get scans everywhere. Especially athletes, right? Because we're so used to just like subverting and like burying the pain. Like, I can tolerate it. I got this. You know, athletes are going to start thinking, well, geez, I, I don't even know. Maybe I'm damaged. I don't even know it. That's not how it works. Mostly. Oh, yeah. I'm definitely damaged. Okay. Uh, the, the last point I was trying to get to here was that sometimes the brain is warning you about damage it's afraid you might cause. So it's sort of like an early warning system, which could be a, a reasonable adaptation, a reasonable thing for our, our body to have evolved to do. But sometimes this early warning system kind of runs amok. And now you've got pain that is not actually connected to anything physical at all. You just have this pain. Did I understand that right? Yeah, I think that that's a good point. And I actually, because we're on audio here and I can't show you this, I have a graphic that I'll try to describe that I, that I share with people a lot. If you send it to me, I'll put it in the show okay. notes. I can send you an image from a, a great um, book called Explain Pain, which was also co-written by Lorimer Mosley, who I referenced earlier. He has a diagram in there called the Twin Peaks model, and he uses it, uses, it, uses it as a way to describe sort of a superhuman effort, right? Think of the end of a bike race, for instance, or when there's an attack going up the road and you're trying to chase it down, right? That, that would be considered like a maximal effort. And so on this Twin Peaks model, in the normal situation, there's a line that they call the protect by pain line. This is the line at which your brain will start to feel like there's some danger and will give you symptoms. That happens before you do any tissue damage. So that's what you're saying is like an early warning system to sort of tell us to, to back off or go home sometimes is the message. But it's important for athletes to know that they haven't done anything wrong to their bodies. They haven't injured anything, right? For a lot of people, that danger alarm will turn off and we'll go back to baseline. 
For other people, it won't. And even though they haven't done tissue damage, the danger alarm system will stay on. And unfortunately, when we've either had an injury or we've had pain with no injury for a long time, the protect by pain line starts to move down. So their nervous system sensitivity is higher and their room to be able to move is actually less and less and less over time. And that's why when you stop cycling, you stop running, you often get worse and you find that you sort of dig yourself a hole. What's interesting about then the after injury or after pain side of this image is that the protect by pain line has come down lower, but the soft tissue damage line is, is way above it. You know, you, you have this massive gap between when pain starts and when you're actually going to hurt yourself. And so you actually, I actually spend a lot of time green lighting and giving people permission to go and start moving again um, once they can relate to the symptoms as non-dangerous. Because if they don't bump up against that protect by pain line, then it's going to stay low. They need to bump it back up to where it started. And in the process of doing that, they recondition their tissues and their potential for tissue damage actually is, is even less because they're getting fit again, right? They're getting strong again especially if they've had a big break from running or cycling. So if you want to post that image, it's kind of a nice way to look at it. But the, the, the takeaway there is that the protect by pain point is below the tissue damage point. You have a grace period. Now, if you crash on your bike or get in a car accident or your deck climbing, you skip right through that gap, hmm. right? You've done tissue damage. At that point, your brain didn't have a chance to protect you. Yeah, I've done all of those things. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. So... Athletes come to you with pain. What do you do? How, how do you figure out which of these types of pain is it? Um, that's a great question. There's a lot of emerging science um, around this right now. I'll tell you my, my strategy based on the science. The first one is to do a really thorough history and a really thorough exam. And I think people, especially athletes, really like someone to examine them to assess and evaluate and collect data, strength, the range of movement, special tests. These give me a lot of confidence and they give my clients a lot of confidence that their body's okay. I spend, I use a lot of my skills these days to rule things out. And of course, sometimes you find things and you rule them in and you need to address them. But more and more, as I'm learning about the science, I spend less time pathologizing things that I find and more time normalizing them. So that body rule out is a really important part of the process. For me. And I can get a pretty good sense whether there's a pattern that points to a primary body problem or one that points more towards a brain and mind problem. And of course, in the history, it's going to come up, right? Like with an athlete, so many athletes I see come in and they have no idea why their pain started, right? They have all these hypotheses, like maybe it's the shoes, maybe I'm running a little more, maybe, you know, but the pain came on out of nowhere. There was no obvious injury. Nine times out of 10, that's the case. No, I just, it just started one day. And that starts to tell you that maybe we're not dealing with a body problem already. And then you start asking about life stress. You start asking about the fear of pain and how vigilant they are and how terrified they are, how it's threatening their identity or whatever. But then you also start talking about the other stresses in their life. And often you find some significant life stressor, like, like, some, like change is a really big one, that coincided with the onset of their symptoms. But the first thing we as athletes do is we say, oh, it must be my body. It must be what I'm doing in my training. It must be my bike fit, whatever. And that's usually takes you down the wrong road. It's a, just a distraction. So in the history, you start to get a sense for this. I also use symptom behavior a lot. And symptom behavior can tell you a lot. For instance, if you went for a really hard run and your knee felt fine during the run, and then later that night or the next day or two days later, your knee started to bother you. That starts to point at more of a sensitive nervous system than to anything you did during that run that could have caused any damage. If you see an old pain pattern light up that had been dormant for a long time, for no obvious reason, that's another symptom behavior. Sometimes we see symptoms switch sides where someone had a surgery, let's say on their left knee, and then pain shows up on the right knee that's very similar for no obvious reason, that tells you something, right? So there's this long list of symptom behaviors that start to get you really curious about whether you're dealing with a body, primary tissue problem, or whether you're dealing with a brain-mind. I was chuckling because there's been a handful of times in my life where, you know, I've been like, oh, my knee's hurting again. and be like, wait a minute, it's my other knee. You know, <laughs> it's my good knee that's hurting. How is that possible? And, and over, 
the years, you know, my good knee has shifted from, you know, this side to that side and back to the other side. Yeah. And you, you can start to see that play out, especially with chronic pain. You asked about chronic versus acute. Yeah. We'll talk about that a little bit, but we see that in acute symptoms sometimes that, that strange symptom behavior that points away from a structural problem. I mean, I, you know, plantar fasciitis is a, a really interesting one because most people talk about chronic pain in terms of the spine, but I can't tell you how many runners I've seen who've had long-standing plantar fasciitis and they have no obvious reason for why it started. But when you start asking them about that time in their lives, when the pain came on, it's usually a significant time marker for them where there was a lot of change going on with, with moving or with their work or with their relationship. And then you start to ask them about symptom behavior and they'll say, well, you know, I have some symptoms in the morning and then it goes away when I start moving. And you ask them about running and they're like, well, I can run just fine. It actually feels better the more I run. But then later in the day, it gets bad again. And if you have a structural problem, it's not going to get better the more you run. Yeah, That's just not how they behave. So you start to really get curious about what's driving the person's symptoms at that point because the pain's behaving so weird. Right. Well, and I have to ask this question because we've all heard of the placebo effect. And I don't actually know anybody who doesn't believe that it, is, that it really happens. I'm a big fan. Well, yeah. Glenn and I were... Uh, chuckling about that uh, earlier today that, you know, I'm happy to pay for placebo effect. <laughs> uh, you know, as long as I get some positive effect <laughs> from, you know, what, what I purchase, it doesn't matter whether it's real or not, as long as, you know, I get the effect. However, funny aside, it, people who believe that the placebo effect is real, they must by default admit to themselves and possibly publicly that the brain is quite powerful. The brain can do things, but I have always felt my, you know, my layman understanding of the placebo effect is that the placebo effect was actually something was happening, that the brain ha was having an effect on the body. I wonder if that's true. I wonder if it wasn't just the pain was going away or some discomfort was going away rather than something got healed from the placebo effect. So let me just ask you, placebo effect, how does that work into all of this? So Joe, the placebo is so interesting we, we know it's a very real effect, like something's happening. We just don't necessarily know what is happening all the time or how to explain it. So I don't think of the placebo as fake or, or not real at all. And I'm a little careful when I say this, but even the manual therapies that I use, whether it's needling or manipulation or fascia release or even exercise, those things can act as a placebo in a way if they make the person feel safe or they give them some sense of control that's actually going to reduce the brain's tendency to want to produce symptoms or inhibit muscles. So you might actually see the muscle strength improve. And you don't know if that's because of the effect that you had on the brain alone, or whether you actually had some change in the muscle locally, hypertrophy, or the muscle got stronger, bigger. There are even open label placebo studies now where the person knows they're getting a placebo and they still, it still has an effect. In research, they try to use something that's totally benign but of course, the changes we see in pain are so wrapped up in belief and so wrapped up in past experience and expectation and things like therapeutic alliance that it's really hard to make anything a sort of a clean placebo, like a neutral placebo. Sure. So, so I, I feel like in my practice, I'm using the power of the placebo all the time to support people in calming their nervous system, reducing fear, and thus reducing pain. And so at some, some level, I don't always care whether it's having an effect on their body or whether it's actually changing something in their brain, as long as they get better. As a matter of course, I'm also having to walk the line that I think this is a really important message for, for athletes, as much as it is for clinicians, around trying to avoid the nocebo effect, which is the exact same effect in the opposite direction, where I'm doing something to them that actually makes their symptoms worse, because I'm causing more fear because I'm pathologizing something in the absence of anything really being wrong, because I'm blaming the wrong phenomenon, I'm blaming their bike fit, and three bike fits later, they're still not better, right? That's going to have a nocebo effect on that person, because then it's generating more fear, potentially, if I'm pathologizing the wrong thing for them. So as a clinician who's trained to find problems, and to look for things that are wrong, and to identify opportunities, I really have to watch my language, and I have to watch my interventions, right? And I have to, to just watch the way I talk to people so that I'm not creating more fear. Because I see so many people coming in my clinic having talked to the, the doctor or another PT or a chiropractor that just sort of often unintentionally fed them a story 
an explanation for what was going on for them. It just increased fear and thus had the wrong effect. I suppose the more narrow the field of practice of the practitioner that they were at, the more likely it is that because that person has a hammer that they identified a nail. Right. It's more reductionist thinking, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, it's very true. So the power of the placebo is real and 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 really the potential there I think is in shifting our our brain from danger to safety. Yeah. Sometimes there's chronic pain. So the question is is chronic pain always a fear-based mind-based thing or is there really sometimes a physical underlying thing? Yeah, you know, like an overuse injury and you keep using it. And so you keep having a pain associated with it. Yeah, I want to I want to come back and first just reiterate that all pain is real, because in this conversation of talking about the mind and the brain, sometimes it can be invalidating and minimizing to people who are in pain for them to take away that, oh, well, this pain is in my brain, it's in my head. So it must not be real. All pain is real 100% of the time. So just because you have a psychological stressor that's causing pain in your plantar fascia, that's the same exact pain you would have if you had a tear in your plantar fascia, let's say. And the brain can produce any pain it wants, can produce any symptom it wants to try to get our attention. It's very sneaky and it's very good. And it tends to put symptoms in a place that is more salient to us. So if you're an athlete, think what, what's going to threaten your ability to do your sport the most, your brain's going to pick that one. because It's going to be most likely that you'll pay attention to it, which is really kind of phenomenal to think about how clever that is, that, that system is. We can talk about like, what's the message of that later if it's not a body problem. But what you're asking is, is there sometimes a structural problem? And the answer is yes, of course. There are definitely times when the brain is accurately registering that something is wrong with the body and we want to catch those situations. We want to address them, right? That does happen. I would say it's more rare than people think. If you look at the literature, you know, around the, the, the low back, for instance, the prevalence in some of these big studies is below three, four, five percent of people with back pain have an actual structural problem that's driving their pain, which is kind of shockingly small, right? It's almost criminal. <laughs> yeah, in a way. Um, and we're starting to see these studies show up in other parts of the body too, with the hip labrum and with the shoulder and with you know things like patellofemoral pain and plantar fasciitis, uh, heel pain. We're starting to see these play out. So, so yes, we, we want to be really looking for those red flags you know, it could be cancer, it could be a stress fracture, it could be um, some of these things that we really want to address medically. That said, most of those things you can address through medicine, or they'll just heal on their own. And I mentioned earlier that we have these really predictable healing times for different tissues. And so let's say you have a, a you tore a ligament, you actually tore a ligament like my wife did a few months ago and had to have surgery. We know that that ligament is going to heal within about 12 weeks. And so if she has pain six months later, unless something went horribly wrong with the surgery, which it rarely does, because surgeons are really good at what they do, that pain is being now driven by the brain rather than by her healing ligament. And of course, even when she has surgery, the brain is the reason she has symptoms in her thumb, but the brain is doing its job of saying, hey, you need to be careful. You can't pick up that heavy thing. You can't move your thumb in that way because you're healing, right? It's smart that way. But we can trust that our bodies heal in a very predictable amount of time. And a lot of people are saying, we hope, like clinicians are saying, we hope this is the year that the term wear and tear goes away, that we can just like lose that term as athletes from our vocabulary, because it's really not a thing, right? Of course, we have things that happen as we age and as we've been running for 30 years, like I have, we have tissue changes. But the idea of wear and tear predisposes some damage, some long-term problem that we're going to have, which isn't always the case. So we know in the science that chronic pain is talked about separately from acute pain. The assumption being that acute pain, because it's new, because it just started, must mean that there's something wrong with the body. And I'm always making this argument that acute just means that the time domain it's early in the process. Acute means that the pain just started in the last few weeks or a few months. It doesn't mean anything about the mechanism. Everybody that has chronic pain started at some point with acute pain. And in my practice, I see people really early in their process. And my goal is to be preventive and to shut down, to keep them from turning into chronic pain, from tipping over into chronic pain by reducing fear early, talking about healing times, or 
with a lot of people in acute pain, they don't have any tissue damage either. Even though the pain just started yesterday and their back flared up and they're locked up in their back, it doesn't mean they injured anything. And explaining that to them and helping them understand how that works can be really helpful to get them back functioning within a few days instead of weeks or months, right? So I don't, I don't like to assume that all acute pain is tissue damage because it's not. And I would even say the percentage there is relatively high. If I get 10 people coming in my door with acute new pain, eight or nine out of 10 of them are not going to have a body problem. They're just fine. Well, that's amazing, but good. I'll speak for myself and say that one of the things that is uh, troubling to me as somebody who's been strong and active athletic for my life is and healthy is I'm sort of proud of my healthiness. And when I lose it, I start to lose some of myself. I'm afraid that I'm not me anymore. And so to, to find out that I actually don't have a problem in my joint or my back, it's just pain. And we just got to figure out what that pain is. I can deal with the pain. Thank God my back is fine. Right. I mean, that's 10% of the problem. Yeah, for sure. The fear. When you have pain, Glenn, I'm curious how you relate to it. Like, what's your reaction early in the process? Well, the question always becomes, first off, is like, something hurts, why is it hurting? And of course, being a scientist, my goal is always trying to identify the causal nature of pain. But I've noticed that there are two kinds of pains, and you described it really well. One is real structural issues. Like, if I start a bike ride and my knee starts to hurt, and later on the pain goes away, that could be several things. But when the pain starts to move or relocate, I know it's got to be nerve involved. And I have some nerve issues in my back. As a bike racer, we have back issues. And so the pain migrates some nerve, the move, it moves around. So I know that that's a nerve problem and it's coming from L4, L5. It's not coming from the actual source of where I feel the pain. Okay. So yeah, so a couple things there. I think one thing just I want to normalize because as much as I understand pain, when I have pain, I catastrophize just like everybody else, right? My first reaction is, oh boy, here we go. What did I do? What's wrong? Is something actually hurt, right? If we can catch people in that state and rule those things out and reinforce safety early, we can move through those, those flare-ups or whatever you want to call them, I think much more, much more quickly. But knowing that a lot of the reason that people hurt in the acute phase, early in the phase, is because they're scared that something's wrong, scared that something's damaged. To me, that's a more important thing to focus on than something being torn or something being injured or there being a structural problem because it just, it's not the case very often, especially if there's no clear mechanism. If you sprain your ankle and it bruises and swells, it's a no-brainer. Well, I remember like there were many times, um, and I was younger then, when I would wake up one morning and uh, my neck was killing me and I just assumed I slept poorly. And in reality, the net result was that it was a nerve pinch. And so a chiropractor could solve that problem sometimes. But um, I mean, I, I'll never forget this one time. It was, it was so dramatic. I was, Wayne Stetton was on our team back then uh, when I raced for U.S. Postal. All he did, because I, I was in so much pain, I could barely function. He just took my head and just basically put a towel around it and pulled my head. Pain stopped instantly. And I was like, well, that's definitely nerve pain. Well, I was thinking it's a muscle. So I think I keep going back down to the issue of, if I'm going to solve the problem, I got to get down to what's causing the problem. The problem is that if it's caused by stress and it's caused by, you know, fear, um, yeah, that kind of stuff, you got to, you got to deal with the problem, get rid of the fear and the stress and everything else. And, and that's why yes. it really becomes a much more complex problem than just like I strained my ankle and it hurts kind of thing. Yeah. It's so, it's so interesting that story that you just told, because a lot of people end up waking up and having back pain or their neck being kinked. And that happens to me periodically. You could call that a facet joint problem or a pinched nerve or something. And there are times when you actually have a little bit of an injury, let's say, to that tissue. But believe it or not, more often than not, that's still your brain thinking there's something dangerous. It can even be something coming from your unconscious brain, which is obviously really active at night when you're in dream state. And you wake up and even though it's not the pillow, it's not the way you slept, you were in some funny position, you still have pain. You still have stiffness in your joint. You still have muscles that get really tight and guarded. Most of the time, those things are the result of something else rather than the primary cause. So yes, we can work on them. Yes, we can address them. But those are your brain's reaction to some perceived threat. And it's the way, of, it's the way your brain is trying to get your attention. So this does play out in the body. But I relate to these things as secondary to a brain that's sensitive 
rather than a primary tissue problem. Kind of flips the script on what you're blaming, right? Yeah. Which is what you're saying, Glenn. Like as a scientist, I want to get to the cause. I want to get, and in this case, cause most of the time is up in the brain. So, so the last thing I've got, and I'll mention it here, but before we get to it, I wanted to open the floor for any other things that Charlie or Glenn you wanted to mention. But the last thing I wanted to end with is advice that you have for the older athlete who is determined to stay strong and active essentially for the rest of their lives. But is there anything you want to talk about before we talk about that? Ooh, that's, a, that's going to be a big one to crack open. That's a, Let's that's, do it. That could be its own podcast. Let's do it for sure. I think, I think maybe I just want to come back and circle back to finish chronic pain because okay. I talked about acute pain. But chronic pain, I think, is somewhat unique in that most of the time we're dealing with learned, we call them learned neural pathways or learned neural circuits. These are the connections your brain has made as it's gone through the acute phase, either as something was healing, like a surgery or an injury, or because you've had pain for a while, it's gotten very good at doing that. It's burned it in, right? Like a single track trail. And it's then turned into a superhighway. It's it's sort of burned it in. It's really gotten really good. It's like a habit. And so with chronic pain, we start to, to relate to it more like that. We trust that the body's okay. It's had plenty of time for healing. The challenge with it is that we see in functional MRI scans that the brain areas that light up with chronic pain are a bit different and they start to overlap with learning and they start to overlap more with emotion. And we don't know yet if acute pain behaves the same way when there's not a tissue damage problem. I think that's a, a next area of study. But with chronic pain, we see that that emotion and belief and learning are a big part of what's driving the symptoms at that point. And that, in that way, we address things a little bit differently at that point, because we really need people to understand that their body is safe. Everything is predicated on that idea at that point, like ruling out the body, helping them to understand what's going on, how, how pain and other symptoms work. And then we sort of get to the strategies, right? At that point. I think it's important for athletes to know that chronic pain most of the time is a, a brain-driven problem and that the body's okay. Because you, you, you know, we all have, we all know or personally have symptoms that have been around for years, right? Like that, that knee pain that comes and goes, that, that back pain that comes and goes, right? Athletes have these things all the time. Well, I have a question for you on that. Yeah. Sort of related to inflammation in the body as a confounding factor or a, a magnifier of pain. I used to be big on uh, vitamin I, yeah. ibuprofen. Uh, I mean, I, I'm amazed I'm still alive from all the ibuprofen that I took over the years. Your body's resilient, Joe. Apparently. Uh, thank goodness for that. That's anti-inflammatory medicine. And there's also then like diet and other other things that you might do in your life, whether it's stress or sleeping well or other things. I'm glad you brought up inflammation because it is something athletes think a lot about. And you're right. Sleep, diet, stress, lifestyle, all of those things affect our our whole body inflammation. And there are people that they have symptoms all over their body, like one whole side of their body. They're like, it's my shoulder and my elbow and my hip and my knee and my foot. Like it's all on the left, right? That's another symptom behavior that points to a sensitive nervous system more than seven different structural problems. Um, yeah. It's a very common one. You know, whole body inflammation is sometimes the result of, again, of a nervous system that's sensitive. So the brain can produce inflammation as a way to generate healing. And that would be a very normal reason for the brain to produce inflammation, you know, to make the capillaries leaky and to bring nutrients and to take out um, you know, toxins so that heal, normal heal, healing can happen. But the brain can also produce inflammation in the absence of tissue damage because of our lifestyle or because we're stressed to the hilt because we have a sensitive nervous system. And that would be uh, something that's not necessarily dangerous, right? But it's a real phenomenon that's playing out in the body, just like a stiff joint or muscle tension. It just happens to be driven by a sensitive brain, an overloaded stress brain, rather than damaged tissue. Where I thought you would go with that was the opposite. I thought that you would say, that instead of that the brain can make the body inflamed in general, I thought that a bad diet, uh, bad sleeping, etc., cetera, uh, a lack of ibuprofen would result in inflammation that would make the nervous system sensitive. 
So is that not true or is both things true and you just got to sort out what's... Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about causation. I think at the end of the day, like if I were to ask you what, what tends to cause poor sleep, what tends to cause poor food choices, what tends to cause the, the stress that we experience and how much we're tending to that stress. This all gets back to our, our psychology at the end of the day, right? If our brain wants us to stay vigilant because we feel like we're in some danger because our job isn't going well or because our relationship isn't going well, we're not going to be able to sleep, right? Our brain says, you need to stay awake because you're in danger. And so that comes back to being more of a primary psychology problem. Yeah. And then, of course, the inflammation probably will result because you're not getting that restful sleep that you need. And maybe you're still trying to train also and train through that. And so you're not recovering as well from those workouts, but it comes still comes back to um, what's the problem? Like, what are we going to look at? Are we going to treat the inflammation with vitamin I, or are we going to really start looking at the, the quality of that athlete's life and saying, what are the, what are the dials we can change? Yes, we can change diet. Yes, we can try to change sleep, but if there's still a psychological stressor that's in the way, we're not going to get very far. I see. So the brain is not causing the inflammation directly. It would be doing it via these mechanisms that would result in inflammation that would be creating this sensitized nervous system. It kind of starts to feel a little bit like the matrix. It's like, what, what's causing this? Like what's real and what's not real, right? It's kind of hard to get your head around it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, the brain is the executive, right? It's, it's in charge of all of these different processes. And so if our diet isn't good and our sleep isn't good, our brain's getting more and more input, but there's danger. And so the output might be inflammation. The output might be digestive changes. The output might be heel pain or low back pain, right? And I see this all the time in acute low back flare-ups that a lot of people have where their back just seizes up on them. It's 10 out of 10. It's the worst pain you can imagine. Maybe you guys have had this. I mean, people can hardly walk into my office. The pain is so bad. And there's nothing wrong with their body, but there's something significant going on in their lives that might be affecting their food choices. It might be affecting their sleep. And it's definitely coming out as body pain in that moment. And so if I can reduce fear and help that person make that connection, and they even make some meaning out of why the pain started when it did, because someone important in their life passed away, or because you know, some, some, some other massive change or life stressor was going on, the fear comes down right away. People can't believe they're like, I'm in 10 out of 10 pain in my back. I can't, I can't believe that my body's okay. Right. It's hard to imagine, but if you can make that connection, it really brings down fear. And I've seen people walk out of my office after an hour, like nothing ever happened. That's how quickly, that's how plastic the nervous system is and how quickly you can get things to change. So they come to your office with this terrible back pain and there's really nothing wrong with them, but you can do something for them, manipulate whatever. Maybe you just get your Theragun out or whatever, and you massage the muscle in it, and it, then they feel better, and that relieves some of the fear, I'm assuming. People like to be touched. Yeah, I mean, pe- people like touch, right? I think it's therapeutic for lots of reasons, yeah. um, and, and we all, we're all conditioned to think that, you know, if my body hurts, that I need something done to my body. Yeah. So yeah, the short term, the short term, you can do things as you're saying, okay. even if it's just gentle movement, normalizing that as you reduce okay. fear. Getting back to my old pal, vitamin I, are painkillers fear reducers and do they help or is it really sort of a false help? Cause it's not dealing with the real underlying emotional. Mm, it's a good question. It's a good question. You know, I think in the short term, like when someone's in that much pain, even if it's a placebo, to go back to our earlier conversation, even if it's a sugar pill, if it reduces fear, it's going to change their, their pain experience. So I use hands-on therapies. I use movement, manipulation, needles, whatever. In the short term, medicine, other interventions, injections, those can also be really helpful short-term strategies, even if they don't get to the cause. They're bringing people's symptoms down to a point where then they're workable. It's hard to learn. you know. It's hard to like for anything else to, to get in, for anything to change when you're in pain. You're just overwhelmed. Your, your, your brain is so busy and dangerous. Sure, sure. And you're terrified that it's forever. I'm going to feel for sure. 10 out of 10 pain for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. And so to bring, to bring the nervous system back down to a regulated state where then you can work with it, and then you can start to get your head around you know, what, what really was the cause of this and how do we address it? 
So if it, in the case of you know my client who had 10 out of 10 back pain because his parents had passed away the year before, we need to start talking about grief. And we need to start understanding that that time marker is really salient for his brain. And now he wasn't attending to that, paying attention to that, and never would have connected that with his back pain. Once the symptoms have calmed down, then he can have the energy and the bandwidth to attend to that grief, as an example. Got it. But it doesn't have to be that big a life event. It could be, you know, it's interesting, like a lot of athletes have pain and other symptoms in the taper phase leading up to a race right? Let's say you've been training for three, four, six months, and then you have this one to two week taper before a big event. And after this conversation, you can guess why that might be, you know, what are the psychological factors that could be driving physical symptoms, even though you're training 40 or 50% of what your old volume was. Athletes make up stories about this all the time, but is it possible that the anticipation about that event is heavy? Is it possible they're putting pressure on themselves? Is it possible that someone's coming to watch and they're nervous? Is it possible that they're not, they're not sure they're good enough? There's fear of success. There's fear of failure, right? And their identity is wrapped up in that event. And so there's a lot of emotion going on around that. And if you can help athletes understand that even them not having the distraction of training can even kick up some anxiety and other feelings, right? There's this void, there's this space for them to just sit with themselves for two weeks as they wait for the event to come. It's almost like, you know, the, the taper as a nocebo mm. at that point. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's helpful for athletes. And I think not, not enough people are talking about this with athletes because we just assume it's an athlete and they're training so hard, they must have a body problem. So, yeah, you, you, I think you were going to ask me about, like, what do we do? People in the clinic are like, well, thanks a lot, Charlie. Like, what do I do now? <laughs> How do you deal with these non-structural issues? They've got pain and you've alluded to some of it. I mean, you've said, well, you, you know, you need to reduce their fear. People like to be touched. They, it's therapeutic. They feel better when they're getting treated, even if it's not treating exactly the root cause. But eventually you've got to get to the root cause, right? Yeah, and that, that's true. So I, I think of this in four quadrants. The first quadrant is is ruling out the body and helping people understand how pain works, right? That's the pain education step. And it's so important because if you can shift people's beliefs, sometimes that's all they need. Sometimes that's, that's all that needs to happen and people are feeling better, especially athletes, especially if you catch it early. The second phase would be getting people moving again, especially if they've been avoiding things or if there's a lot of fear about getting back to certain things, you need to give them permission and, and support people to doing that in a way that feels safe for them. And then gradually over time, it doesn't have to be all that gradual sometimes, but sometimes people are like, really, I get a green light and they just go and they're like, wow, I can do it again. That's amazing. But sometimes you have to, through graded exposure, take them back up so the nervous system can get used to, as I said earlier, bumping up against that protect by pain line over and over again, giving them permission to do that and de-fearing movement. That's step two. Step three is a really interesting process called pain reprocessing therapy or um, somatic tracking is one of the tools we use in there. And somatic tracking is helping to support people in sitting and observing their symptoms in a totally new way, where they're actually tracking what's going on inside their body without fear, without judgment, without trying to change it. And in doing that, they're sending their brain messages of safety, and they start to pave over the old neural pathways, the habit of those things being scary. And so you're sitting and just observing symptoms, either in a chair or as you're walking or as you're on your bike or as you're running. That step alone can be super powerful for people, and you can even do it in combination with the movement, de-fearing of movement a lot of the time because they go together. And a lot of time during that process, while people are sitting and looking at their symptoms, they realize there's emotion there. And their attention goes from focusing on what's happening in their knee and watching it move around and watching it go up and down right before their eyes like magic. And then suddenly some emotion comes in. And then we can track that. And we can start to see that this physical symptoms sometimes are actually a manifest manifestation of anger or sadness or grief or, um, or fear, other things. So that process is getting people used to attending to the physical sensations in their body, both pain or symptoms and also emotions without fear. And this is when we start to get into helping people really recognize what's the helpful message here. It's not a body problem. What is my brain trying to tell me? to try to decipher the message. So the fourth step then is starting to get into emotional processing. 
and identifying some of the potential triggers that are going on in someone's life that they need to address. For some people, let's say watch six hours of news a day. What's the emotion that comes up around that? Might be anger, right? And that might be the most important thing for them to identify and sit with, process that anger. And then they might need to make some change to like turn the TV off after two hours instead of doing six hours, right? That would be one example. So through emotional processing, you really get in touch with not so much the physical symptoms, but the emotional stuff that's coming up around the pain itself or around other stuff. And in understanding that, you, you get the meaning. You're like, ah, oh, okay, I see. I see why now my heel has been hurting for eight months. It's because my, my running coach left and I was left without a running coach. And that was really traumatic for me. I really had a hard time navigating that change. And my new coach wasn't very good. And that was the week my heel pain started. So what are the emotions that are going to come up around that, right? Maybe anger, maybe sadness, maybe loss. And so in helping people identify and process those emotions, that's where some of the gift is, because then they can really look at meaningful life change. And you like to argue that that helps people become better athletes, right? Because if, if their life is cleaner and they have less stress and they have more flow, that's going to show up in their performance, in their training, in their recovery. Glenn, you'd have to say that this is starting to sound a lot like our podcast on recovery. Oh, yeah. I, it's, I totally agree with that. There's so many aspects to this because anytime we deal with the neurology of it all, there's a lot more involved than we really understand about it. I have to say, as a, as a neuroscientist for years, there's so little we know about pain research and pain mechanisms. And, and you know, being involved with uh, Howard Fields and Alan Basbaum at UCSF, they were the pain people back then. And they were trying to understand acupuncture. And when they made that breakthrough and figured out how acupuncture worked, it was like, it was huge. It really was. How does it work? Uh, let's not go into that now. That's another, that's another whole seminar. <laughs> okay, another podcast. Yeah, exactly. I think it is important to be humble and really recognize how little we do know, even though we've learned a lot in the last 10, 20 years about pain. It's important to recognize how little we know, but it's also helpful, I think, to understand that with this paradigm shift, we don't have to know everything about symptoms, what we have to be able to do is connect with people. I, as a clinician, have to be able to connect with people. I have to be able to reduce fear and I have to be able to support them in moving again and understanding that they're safe and helping them get in touch with their feelings and their emotions because emotions and pain are really interchangeable. And we don't have to understand everything about the mechanism to be able to do that. Right. Well, especially if you have techniques that have worked for other people, well, why not try that? even if you're not 100% sure why it works. Yeah. Placebo. There we it's go. Good stuff. It's the good stuff. So the last thing, if you are ready for it, was advice for the older athlete who wants to stay an athlete forever. All right. This is a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start just by telling my process is transitioning from a younger athlete to an older athlete. I'm, I'm in my late 40s now, and I've been running and cycling since I was – 15 years old or so, um, and racing in all different situations and conditions, winter, summer, different distances, at a pretty high, high level, and become a pretty high level master's athlete in the course of that time. And after many years of taking it very seriously and putting a lot of pressure on myself and trying to prove things to myself and to others and all the things that we as athletes do, and it being part of my identity and being a way that I processed emotions or I thought being the way that I managed things like anxiety and you know, it gave me a lot of confidence. It was great for my self-esteem. As I started to get older, I realized that that wasn't working for me so well anymore. I needed to, to find a new relationship with it. So I think as a lot of us go through our 40s and we start to make this midlife opportunity transition, as I like to call it, I think we, we owe it to ourselves to reassess why we're doing what we're doing and then make some decisions based on that analysis. For me, it meant not giving those things up, but doing them in a new way and adding more play into my movement, taking it a little less seriously, being less hard on myself, beating myself into the ground less, and really just making it playful a lot of the time. More and it fun. doesn't mean that I don't, yeah, it doesn't mean I still don't still have intensity because I love doing things at high intensity. I love pushing myself sometimes. But sometimes if I'm not in the mood for that, I, I give myself permission to not do it. And for me, the putting the fun back in to all of my sports has been fantastic. The other thing I think that's been really valuable is um, novelty and learning new things. 
Skill acquisition for me has been one of the most joyful parts of my movement practice now is learning new things. And I just realized how much I love that part of the process. I think the reality is our brains all love novelty. So after 25 years of being a triathlete, if someone starts to have pain, their brain might be telling them, hey, that's enough of that. We need something new now. And maybe you need to try to pick a different sport or you need to try to learn a new skill. And people will resist that until the end of time, until they have so much pain in their body that they just can't do their thing anymore, right? Their brain's like, no, really, you need to learn something new. I think the brain naturally craves novelty. And I think it craves skill acquisition, it wants that stimulation. And so as an older athlete, if you can give yourself permission to do that, it keeps things fresh, it keeps your tissues evolving. They don't, they don't end up getting bored. They don't end up, we didn't talk about overuse injuries necessarily, but people can probably take from this that there might be a myth around the idea of overuse injuries, as it were, that that, that may not be a thing, kind of like wear and tear maybe isn't a thing like we thought it was. So those would be my two things, play, novelty. That's my summary. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's great advice. The only thing I'll add to that is that just based on my own experience, the things that sound like they'll be boring to do when you don't know hardly anything about them will often turn out to be exhilarating once you get to know them. Mm. My wife tried to get me to ride a bicycle for 20 years and I just thought, oh, that would be so dull. Just riding along. I mean, there's there's no like cliffs to fall off or there's no 80 mile an hour winds at zero degrees. You know, you can't get lost and die. I mean, how how interesting could it possibly Sounds be? Sounds pedestrian, right? And so I, but I have found, I got into it, you know, kicking and screaming, but I found as an example that cycling is a wonderful sport. You just don't know what you don't know. So you've got to give these things a try. Don't cling to the thing that you know and assume that everything else is terrible. Isn't that cool? The novelty, yeah, the novelty is so is so refreshing. And I hope people will find that that's a really great strategy. I have one more thing I want to just call out here. And for any athlete, but I think for the older athlete especially, I think we get better at tuning into our emotions as we get older. I hope we get better at sort of as we grow and we become more wise, sort of attending to those things more. But I think attending to our psychology is probably one of the more important strategies for maintaining physical health and, and just health and wellness in general. And as athletes, I think we, we were drawn to these endurance sports because it's a way to bury our psychology. It's a way to, to distract, right? And even to numb ourselves out from our psychology. And when that strategy at some point will stop working and we'll start to have pain. And so as we get older, if we can really tune into to that part of ourselves and really start to listen to some of those helpful messages and make some of the life changes we might need to make around those, it could be changing jobs or it could be changing relationships or it could be changing your scenery and moving from Colorado to San Diego, you know, like it's different for everybody. But if we're not, if we're not listening to those things, if we're not tuning into ourselves, I think that's when our brain starts to sense danger and we'll want to try to get our attention. So that would be the final tool is just doing whatever you can to tune into your own psychology, whether it's mindfulness practice or having a men's group or having friendships where you really sort of trusting and you can really talk to people. And instead of just being with your head down, burying yourself on your bike every day. Right. Don't just try to be the strong guy all the time who doesn't need help who yeah doesn't need to have emotions that's right they're, they're in there you're just pretending they're not you're too stuck in your ego at that point right the more you attach to your ego typically the more suffering there is so right. get outside of yourself and learn how everything's connected and how you're connected to, to everything and there's a lot of rest and relaxation and calming of the nervous system well awesome. we're starting to get a little woo-woo joe i'm a little worried that we're going to it is a little bit I'm going to put some links to some information in the show notes. So if you just have the slightest inkling that, wow, if this is true, this is a big deal for me. This could make a big difference for me. Where can I learn more? Go to the show notes and that'll be a good start. So I'll get that information from you, Charlie. I've got some stuff already. And if there's any more like that Twin Peaks chart. Yeah, I can share all that. uh, We'll put that in there. And, um, And I think this has been amazing. I do this podcast so that I can learn. And at the end of every one, I always think, wow, I've learned so much. But this one, the ground is moving beneath my feet here. 
This has been really powerful. Thank you very much. Of course. Thank you. Yeah, I feel that way every day. And I, I love talking about it, and especially with, with the two of you, how interested you are and with your backgrounds. Um, it's so fun to talk about it with people who are, who are exci- as, as excited as I am about it. I, uh, my, my, just as maybe a final thing here, you know, my, my next act in my life is, is still focused on clinical practice at some level. Um, and I love being able to support people directly one-on-one. But more and more, I'm trying to get this message out into the world through content creation, through social media, and through teaching. And so for the audience, um, I'm teaching a course uh, starting at the end of January for clinicians, especially body-oriented clinicians, clinicians like PTs and chiropractors and acupuncturists and physicians who are typically oriented toward the biomedical model to help them synthesize this stuff really well. And that course will start January 30th, but will happen again in the spring, summer, so people can reach out and stay in touch if they're interested in learning more as a clinician about that. But I have a YouTube channel where I, I continue to make content to help people understand these concepts in a new way and just try to have a bigger impact on society than I can one-on-one in the treatment room. So Well, excellent. Well, good luck with all of that. I'm confident that it'll go well. We'll put links to everything in the show notes, including your contact info, so that anybody who wants to reach out to you directly can do so. Thank you. Appreciate that. Great. Well, thank you, Charlie, thank you. Glenn. You guys have a good night. Thanks very much. Been wonderful. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for listening in to our discussion with Charlie Merrill. Check out our show notes to find contact info for Charlie and the information on pain that was mentioned during the podcast. If you head over to wiseathletes.com, you can send us a question to address on the podcast, see all of our episodes, subscribe to our podcast, and you can sign up for our newsletter. If you are on social media and enjoyed this episode, please post about it. That would be a great help. Thanks again.